Amen. Amen. Well, guys, I want to invite you, if you will, um, <clears throat> to open up your Bibles. Or actually, it's going to be quite a while till we get to that long introduction today. So we'll get to the Bible when we get there, even though this is a sermon on the Bible. But um, I wanted to say th- uh, thanks for coming. My name is Matt Carter. I'm one of the uh, guys that founded this church 15 years ago. We're so glad you're here, especially those of you that are college students that are checking out our church for the first time. Thanks for coming. Um, and also want to say hi to all our campuses around the city of Austin that are meeting right now. We've got North Campus up in Round Rock and West Campus out in Westlake and then the St. John campus in the St. John neighborhood and then South Campus over in the south part of Austin. Thank you guys for joining us. We're so glad you're here. Uh, Today we're continuing our series that we're calling Convictions. And over the next couple weeks, what we're doing is we're looking at the core convictions that are kind of the founding principles of our church. You know, for those of you that are new, whether you're visiting or you've just been coming to the stone for a while, we want you to know why we do what we do and what we're all about as a church. There there are some very specific reasons that we do things the way that we do here at the Austin Stone, and we want you to know what those are. Now, today we're looking at the second conviction of our church, which is quite possibly the most important one, because all the other convictions really are built upon this one, and, and it's this, that we are convinced as a church that we are called, you know, us together corporately, and that you and I individually are to live our lives ruled by God's word. <clears throat> In other words, we believe that the primary entity, the primary thing that guides our lives and motivates and determines our decisions is not the culture. It's not the world. It's not what even we think as individuals it's best, but it's the word of God. It's the scriptures. It's the Bible. Now, I want you to think about something for just a second. That statement I just made, that we're going to live our lives not based on what we think is best, not based on what the culture thinks is best, but on the teachings of the scripture. When you think about it, that statement right now in today's culture is an incredibly radical statement. Y'all with me? It's an incredibly radical statement. In 2017, in today's society, for you to actually walk out those doors today and for you to make the decision, okay, I'm gonna live my life not according to what the culture says is right and wrong, not not according to what I necessarily think is right and wrong, but I'm gonna live my life and I'm gonna make my decisions based on what the word of God says is right and wrong. And in a lot of circles, that makes you a radical. At at, at the very best, that makes you weird, and probably at worst, in a lot of circles, you'll be considered bigoted or hateful for you to base your life on what God says to be true. Okay, think about this. If you you make the decision, I'm gonna live my life ruled by God's word, that's gonna put you in direct odds with the culture today. It's gonna put you at direct odds with, with the culture and issues like abortion. Because what the world says about abortion is that that fetus that's inside of a woman is just a clump of tissue. And that woman that's carrying that fetus has the right to dispose of that clump of tissue any time that that clump of tissue becomes inconvenient for her. Yet the word of God says something very different. The word of God says that that's not a clump of tissue, that that's actually a living being that's made in the image of God, the creator. And because it's made in the image of God, our creator, that child has rights and it has value at the moment of its conception. And so when you, rule, when you have your life ruled based on God's word, it's gonna put you in direct odds with the culture. <clears throat> For you to live your life ruled by God's word is gonna put you in direct odds with the culture and issues like sexuality. 
The world says at the end of the day, we're all animals. We're all just animals. And so you can have sex with whomever you like, whenever you like, and as often as you like it. But the word of God says something altogether different. The word of God says you're not an animal. But you're actually the pinnacle of God's creation. You, you are uniquely created in the image of God. And you are created in the image of God to love God. This is why you were created. To love God, to know God, and to obey God and be in relationship with God. And that sex was created by God. He's the one that thought it up. It was created by God to be a physical reminder and a physical picture of the covenant between Christ and his bride, the church. And therefore, because that's why it was created. It's only to be experienced. It's only to be experienced in the context of marriage between one man and one woman. Now for you to believe that, for you to base your life's decisions on what the Bible says about sex is going to put you at odds with the culture. Last example here, for you to be ruled by God's word is gonna put you in direct odds with the culture in regards to things like marriage. <clears throat> the world says, hey, if you're in a marriage and you aren't happy, end it. <clears throat> put yourself first. If the word of God says something radically different, the word of God says, no, marriage is a covenant. It's a covenant that, that a man and a woman into, enter into with God and that God takes those two people and he forms them into one flesh and that's why Jesus said what God has joined together, you don't ever separate and when you base your decisions on your marriage based on the word of God and not the culture, it's gonna put you at odds with the culture and guys, I could go on and on and on. But the point again is if you make the statement, hey, as a church or as an individual, I'm gonna live my life, we're gonna operate not based on the world says is right, not what based on we think is right, but what on the word of God says is right, you're gonna encounter problems, all right? You're going to be at odds with that culture. Now, here's the question. <clears throat> Why in the world would you do that? Why would we do that? Why would we <clears throat> make the statement that we're not gonna live our lives and base our decisions on what the world out there, out there says is right or wrong, but we're gonna base our decisions on some book that's 2,000 years old. Why in the world would we do that? And the answer to the question is very simple. <clears throat> this is what we believe. Number one, we believe the Bible is from God. We believe the Bible is from God. We believe that the words of scripture are God's very words, that's number one. And number two, because those words are from the Bible, or rather from God, we believe that those words are true, right? Now, since we believe those two things to be true, that the word of God is from God, and that because they're from God, they are true, we don't base our lives on the whims of a culture but we base our lives on a book whose words are from the Lord God Almighty, which transcends every culture in the history of the world. And so I wanna spend some time today and I wanna look at why we believe that the Bible is true. I wanna, I wanna give you some reasons as to why we believe the word of God is God's word. Okay, now, here, here's the first one. Here's the first reason, we're just gonna give you two today, but here's the first reason why we believe that God's, or the scripture is from God. Now, here's the first one. <clears throat> we believe the Bible to be true historically. We believe the Bible to be true historically. All right, now many people today, um, they say that the Bible, especially the accounts of the New Testament, the accounts of Jesus' life in the New Testament, a lot of people, they say, well, they're made up. They're made up. Um, they, the main argument that you're gonna hear today about the scripture <clears throat> is that those accounts of Jesus' life were concocted. They were concocted years after 
the life of Jesus and were mostly written by the political winners of the day and they wrote them to consolidate power and build uh, momentum and power for their movement. Uh, the, the people claim that, that all the claims of Jesus' divinity, that all the, the stories of Jesus' miracles, they were, they were all made up. They never really happened. They were made up to make Jesus kind of look awesome to garner power from themselves, for themselves. And so because of that, we don't know what really happened. We don't know what really happened. We don't know who Jesus really was. And that the real Jesus was probably just a human teacher. And that the biblical accounts of Jesus are probably just legend. Okay, that's kind of the main argument that you will hear today in contradiction of the Bible being the word of God. Now, here's the problem with that. Here's the problem with that argument. The New Testament accounts of Jesus were written far too soon after they happened to be legends. The New Testament accounts of Jesus were written far too soon after they happened to be legends. For example, if you look at the Gospel of Luke, Luke was a physician who wrote an account of Jesus' life, and I want you to watch what he says in the very first verses of his Gospel. Luke chapter one, verse one, the scripture's gonna be behind me. Listen to what he says. Luke says this, he says, "'Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. And he says, there's a lot of people that have written this stuff down. But just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. And it seems good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that's who he was writing the letter to, that you may have certainty According or concerning the things that you have been taught. Now, <clears throat> Luke wrote these words, see this, Luke wrote these words 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus. He wrote them about 30 years after Jesus rose from the grave. And he starts off his account of those events by saying, look, I got all my information from eyewitnesses. I got all these stories from the people that lived it. I got all these stories from the people that saw it happen. Now, here's something I want you to think about and consider. Number one, Israel is a really, really small place. I've been there. It's tiny. It's not thousands of miles from one end to the other. It's just a few dozen miles from one end to the other. It is a very, very tiny place. And so people lived in a pretty, fairly close proximity to each other. And here's the other thing that I want you to understand. The vast majority of the people that were eyewitnesses when Luke wrote this were still alive. The vast majority of people that he was referring to there, when he says, look, I got all this information from eyewitnesses 30 years after that fact, they still would have been alive. And so here's the point. If all this was, was a big hoax, if Luke was a part of some elaborate scheme to scam the masses, okay, you don't start off your account by pointing people to the eyewitnesses that are still alive that could confirm it's a scam. Okay, the only reason you begin your account by saying, hey, there are people that saw this happen, that told me about it, and they're still alive. The only reason that you say that is if the story is true, okay? The same is true for Paul. Paul wrote his letter to the uh, Corinthians, <clears throat> First Corinthians. He wrote um, his letter to them even earlier than that. It was 15 to 20 maybe years after the resurrection of Jesus. Now listen to this. This is in First Corinthians chapter 15, verse three. Now I want you to listen to what Paul says. He says, for I've, I delivered to you 
as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in according with the scripture. And so he starts off and he's saying, here, hey, here's what I'm letting you know. There's a guy named Jesus and he died on a cross. And here's the reason this guy named Jesus died on a cross, because it was to pay the penalty for our sins. And then he goes on. He said that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And so Paul makes this unbelievably crazy claim that there was this guy named Jesus who died on a cross, paid for our sins, and then he was buried. They put him in the ground, and then three days later, the guy came back to life, just like the Bible said he would. Okay, now now, now look, we know the story, but this is a radical claim. A dead dude came alive. Now watch what he says after that. He was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and then he appeared to Cephas and the 12. He said he appeared to Peter, and he appeared to the 12 disciples. And then in verse six, he says, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And so Paul says, okay, look, here's the thing you need to understand. You got a guy named Jesus, he died on a cross, the guy came back to life. He rose from the dead and then he showed up, he physically appeared after his death to 500 people at one time. And Peter said, or rather Paul says, most of them are still alive, you can go talk to them if you want to. Now, church, there is, in my opinion, zero chance. There is zero chance that Paul writes a letter 15 years after the events of Jesus' death and says, hey, 500 people saw it. If you don't believe me, and they saw the guy come back to life, if you don't believe me, go talk to them yourself if it didn't really happen. All right, and I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. The Austin Stone was planted 15 years ago. All right, almost the exact amount of distance in time that Paul wrote the letter about Jesus' resurrection. The Austin Stone first service, December 2nd, um, 2002, that was almost 15 years ago. And let's just say that what I wanted to do, Matt Carter, is I wanted to, or let me say this, there's about 157 people that were at that first service. 157 people at the first service. The vast majority of them are still alive. I think maybe one or two of them since then has passed away. Um, in that 157 people, there are a handful of them that are no longer walking with Christ. They have left the faith. And there's a pretty good number of them that do not like me, just as a human being. For whatever reason, Carter's a jerk, whatever, we're out, going to another church, leaving the faith, they're out. So of the 157, most of them are still alive, and a handful of them aren't even Christians, and there's a good handful of them that hate my guts, right? And so if I were to say something that was a bald-faced lie, there's a lot of them that would know it. Now listen, if I decided, let's say this year I decided, I'll tell you what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna write a book. And in this book, I'm gonna make some crazy claims about what happened 15 years ago in that first service. And I'm gonna say this, because here's what I wanna do. I wanna start a brand new worldwide religion that I'm gonna be the leader of. And I'm gonna get rich, and I'm gonna get powerful. Right, and so I'm gonna write a book, and in this book, I'm gonna say a couple things. Number one, I'm gonna say that on that first service 15 years ago, I raised a dead dude to life. I write it in a book. I'm gonna publish it through Broadman and Holman. I raised a dead dude to life. And then after I raised a dead dude to life, I stood in the pulpit and lightning bolts came out of my fingers. And I wrote that down and I published it. Would you not think, would you not think that a handful of the 157 people that are still alive, many of whom are no longer walking with Christ, many of whom do not like me, would at some point raise their hands and say, uh, that is a big fat lie that never, ever, ever 
happened. Okay, here's the thing I want you to understand. If you write the New Testament two to 300 years after it happened and all the eyewitnesses are dead, you can say anything you want to about what happened and nobody can refute it. But if you're writing it 15 years after it happened and it's all a lie, the last thing you would ever do, last thing you would ever do is start off your letter and say, hey, there were all these eyewitnesses that told me the story or in 1 Corinthians 15, say, hey, there's 500 people, vast majority of them are still alive, go ask them if it never happened. If, if Jesus Christ had never been crucified, if there had never been appearances after his death, if there had never been an empty tomb, I promise you, Christianity would have never gotten off the ground. These, these documents were written way too early to be legends. There are thousands of Messiah stories out there that you've never heard of. You know why? Because they never happened. But this one you have, because it did, okay? So that's the first reason. Christianity, I think, um, is founded on a book that we believe is true, and I think we can believe it is true historically. Here's another reason why I believe the Bible is true. The New Testament documents are too counterproductive in their content to be legends. They're too counterproductive in their content to be legends. All right, if I'm, a, if I'm a church leader and I'm living 20 to 50 years after Jesus and I'm making up all these stories and I'm concocting them, you know, some elaborate hoax to consolidate political power for myself and to get privilege for myself and my, and my buddies, if I'm doing that 2,000 years ago, <clears throat> what I put in the story, the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, if I'm trying to paint this picture and garner power for myself, would one of the main stories of, of the climax of the events be that the hero of the story, Jesus, on the night before he was crucified three times, asked if he could get out of it? I don't think I'm adding that as a part of the story. <clears throat> if I'm making all this stuff up, would I, would I put the part about Jesus being on the cross, crying out to his God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If I'm making all this up and, and, and I'm trying to consolidate for myself power and privilege, do I tell the story of Peter that only minutes before Jesus was crucified that he denies that he knows the hero of the story three times? If I'm trying to consolidate political power for myself and make myself look awesome, do I basically outline the fact that every single one of Jesus' followers in the time that he needed them the most uh, uh, just basically are cowards and abandon him? I'm probably not gonna do that. The only reason that you put those kind of details in the story is they're probably true. Think about this. This is pretty compelling to me. Did you know that at the time, 2,000 years ago, when <clears throat> this was written, that a woman's testimony was not even admissible as evidence in court? Did you know that? That because of women's low status at the time, culturally and socially, their testimony was not even admissible in a court of law. And so if I were making up these stories, if this was all a big hoax that we're concocting to consolidate political power, would I put in the Bible that all of the original witnesses of the resurrection were women? I would not, okay? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of them, all of them say that the very first eyewitnesses of the resurrection were women. 
Okay, if you're making an elaborate hoax, you're making stuff up to consolidate political power for yourself, you would never, ever, 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 ever in a million years admit that the very first people to see Jesus alive after the resurrection were women. You would never do that. The, the only explanation for the raw, unfiltered, and unapologetically negative accounts of everything that happened is that they actually happened. And they're saying, this is what happened, okay? So that's the first reason. Historically, we believe the Bible to be true. I could tell you all kinds of other stuff. I don't have time today. So I'm gonna get in kind of the second main reason, and it's this. <clears throat> the second reason we believe the Bible to be true is, um, is personally. I believe the Bible to be true personally. And I wanna tell you something. The argument that I'm about to give you is probably the least compelling to the skeptic. Okay, for those of you that are not believers here today, or for those of you that are kind of biblical skeptics, this is gonna be the least compelling argument that you're gonna hear. But for me, as the man who's lived what I'm about to tell you, this is the most compelling argument um, for the truth and the validity of scripture, is that I believe the Bible to be true, believe the Bible to be God's word personally. Now I wanna read a verse to you about what Jesus says about his word. And I want you to listen to it. John chapter 10, verse 24. John 10, 24. So the Jews gathered around him, that's Jesus, and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, if you're the anointed one of God, tell us plainly. All right, if you're who you say you are, tell us. And then Jesus answered them and said, I told you, and you do not believe. He said, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness of me. And so, he, so he tells him, look, I told you plainly, you just don't believe me. And all you gotta do is look at my works and you can know I'm exactly who I say that I am. And then verse 26, he says something interesting. He says, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. He goes, the reason that you don't believe is because I have these people that are my sheep. They're the people that God has set his love upon, they're, they're my followers. And then, and then in the next statement, he talks about how the sheep are going to begin to follow him. He's gonna make a statement. He's gonna say, okay, this is how my sheep are going to believe. This is how my sheep are going to start following me. Watch what he says in verse 27. He said, my sheep hear my voice. And I know them and they follow me. Jesus said, my sheep are going to hear my voice, and then the result of them hearing my voice is that they are going to follow me. And so what Jesus does is he's giving this kind of reference here to shepherding. And, and one of the things, because there are not many shepherds here in the room today, let me just give you some shepherding story here. Um, one of the things you need to know about shepherding a sheep is that sheep are stupid. Sheep are dumb. And sheep are all the time running away from their shepherd and they're getting eaten. That's just what sheep do. And so one of the main jobs of the shepherd is to keep all the sheep together. Keep them from running off and getting munched. And the way that the shepherd does that is he does it with his voice. He, he talks to the sheep constantly. He speaks to them. And so one of the ways that he keeps his flock together is that he will call out to them. They will hear the shepherd's voice and then they'll follow him wherever he goes, okay? When, they, when, when sheep hear the voice of the shepherd, they follow him, okay? Jesus is not just waxing eloquent here. He's actually talking about how this works, when believers begin to follow Christ. Jesus says that my sheep, those are, the, those are those of us who believers, we're gonna hear his voice. 
And then when we recognize the voice of our shepherd, our savior, then the result is gonna be we're gonna follow him. Now, do we hear the audible voice of God? Not anymore. How does it work then? Well, in the Old Testament, that is how it worked. In the Old Testament, theological question, how did you hear the voice of God? Well, God spoke directly to prophets, and then prophets would stand up, and he would speak to the people of God, to the sheep of God, and say, hey, this is what God says, and that's how we knew what God said. And they would follow his instruction, most of the time. And then in the New Testament, we actually heard the voice of God through God himself. God put on our flesh, he came to this planet, he, he, through Jesus Christ, God the Son, he walked on the earth that he created and when he spoke, we physically heard the word of God and people heard his voice and they followed him. Have you ever wondered, have you ever stopped a few seconds and thought, you know, why in the world did Peter, James and John, Andrew and all those guys, why did they just stop their lives in an instant and just leave everything and follow after this guy they just met? You ever wondered that? I mean, they got lives. They're trying to make a living. They're fishing. They're doing their thing. And this guy walks up and says, hey, I'm going to make you a fisherman. Follow me. They go, okay. Then they follow him. You ever wondered why? Because what Jesus said is true, that his sheep are going to hear his voice. They're going to recognize that he's the shepherd, and they're going to follow him. Okay, that was when Jesus was here, but now Jesus has been buried, he's been resurrected, he's now ascended into heaven, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father and in 2017, how now do we hear the voice of God? We hear the voice of God through his word, through the scripture. And so um, we, we, we hear it through his word. And so um, when people either hear the Bible preached or, they, or they, they read it for themselves, they hear the voice of God through it. And then they recognize in their heart of hearts that he is who he says he is and they begin to follow him, okay? This is one of the main reasons. This is one of the main reasons that I believe the Bible to be true personally is because I have experienced this personally in my life. I have experienced this personally in my life. Um, and you might say, well, Matt, of course you, you, know, you read the Bible and you think it's God's word. You're a pastor, that's what you do. But here's the thing, I want you to understand something. Long before I was a pastor, uh, way back in the day, when I was an absolute pagan, and all in the world I wanted to do was become a doctor and make lots of money, um, I got invited to a Bible study. I got invited to a Bible study, was not going to church, was not walking with God whatsoever. And it was at that Bible study when I was 19 years old that I heard the word of God sung. And I heard the word of God taught. And I remember the moment. I remember the moment. I was sitting in that place and as a 19 year old kid, as I heard the word of God sung and I heard the word of God taught and I heard his word the best way I can explain it to you is I heard the voice of my shepherd. For the first time in all of my life, I heard the word of God and there was something in my heart in that moment that cried out in places that I didn't even know existed, this is the truth. And in that moment, I began to follow Jesus. And, the, and there, was, there was an almost instantaneous heart level reaction to his voice. And in that moment, I didn't care what the future held. 
In the moment, I, di- I didn't care about money anymore. In that moment, I didn't care about power. I didn't care about prestige. I didn't care about anything. All I knew is that I heard my shepherd's voice and I was gonna follow him the rest of my life. There was a story <clears throat> right after the resurrection. It's called the, the Road to Emmaus where Jesus He's appeared to the women first and then he appears to a couple of of the disciples on this road to Emmaus and they don't recognize him at first because he's in his glorified state and body and so he's walking along with these two guys and and he starts kind of laying out through through the Bible how uh, Jesus was exactly who he says he was, how he was the Messiah and then in Luke chapter 24 verse 32, Jesus takes off and then I watch what, what they said to each other. Then they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he opened up to us the scripture? You see what happened? They didn't even know it was Jesus. All they know is this guy comes walking along beside him and he starts speaking out the word of God and teaching them the word of God and explaining to them how Jesus is fulfilling the word of God. And their response was their hearts began to burn inside of them. That's the best explanation verbally of how I could tell you what happened to me when I was 19 years old. Um, this, this summer, I went to Bolivia with Compassion International and um, I had the opportunity to go to some of the compassion compounds and hang out with the kids there. And it's an unbelievable organization. If, um, if you're not a part of that, you probably should be. And I had the opportunity to sit down with a kid who was 19, about the same age that I was when I came to Christ. And, and um, this is a kid who, who barely spoke English. Um, he had never been to America, uh, the United States. He'd never traveled outside Bolivia. And Bolivia, man, if y'all don't know where Bolivia is, Bolivia's in the middle of nowhere. I mean, it takes a long time to get there. Way South America, there's not much there. And, and he started telling me his testimony. He started talking about how he got saved. It's a 19-year-old kid in Bolivia. And here's what he said. He said this traveling missionary had gone through there, through his town, and had given this kid a Bible. And he said he just sat down, and in the course of a few days, he began to read the entire New Testament. And he made the statement. He said, while I was reading the New Testament, I, I realized that there is nothing that I had read in my life that was more true and more alive than what I held in my hands. And so I started following Jesus. And to me, guys, you know what's fascinating? It's like, no matter where you go in the world, no matter where you go in the world, no matter how far into the middle of nowhere you go around this planet, no matter how primitive the people or the culture, no, no matter how different than they, they are than, to us, when you encounter a believer, even in the middle of the jungles of wherever, if you encounter a believer and you ask them about their salvation experience, they will all tell you an almost identical story that you just heard from me and from the 19-year-old kid in Bolivia. Almost identical story. How is that? How is it that people all over the world in different continents, different languages, different cultures, why do they all say the same story? There's no part in the Bible that says, hey, when, when you hear the gospel, this is how you should feel and this is how you should respond. Why is there almost identical story all over the planet? And the answer, I believe, is really simple, that what Jesus said is true, that my sheep are gonna hear my voice. And when they hear my voice, they're gonna follow me. I'll end today with them. Um, with the story of uh, Jesus taking his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, which is really kind of the main reason that we follow 
and rule our lives by God's word, not what we think is right. It's the story of uh, the gates of Hades. Jesus took his disciples there one day. I wanna show you a picture here of the gates of hell or the gates of Hades. I've been, I've stood right there in front of that opening and let me explain gates of Hades to you. This, this place in Caesarea Philippi was the center of pagan worship of the day and it was for centuries and centuries. Um, if you go there today on a tour, they can show you all the areas of that wall behind me where all these altars were built over the centuries to, to these gods, these different gods that kind of came and went and were worshiped there. They can take you to the, to, to the altar of the god called Tyke, little g god, Tyke, and they can show you how the followers of Tyke would sit there at that wall and they would worship him. They can take you to the altar of, of Echo the Mountain Nymph. He was a big deal back in the day. And how the worshipers and the followers of Echo the Mountain Nymph would come to their altar and they would worship there. They could take you to the altar of, of, the, of the little G God called Nemesis, where the worshipers of Nemesis came for, for years and years and years. And they gave the best of their time and, and the best of their energy and the best of their finances and the best of their worship to, to their God. And this wall right here, this area was called the gates of Hades or the gates of hell. And Jesus took his disciples there and he stopped and he, and he pointed back to the wall and he said, boys, I gotta ask you a question. Who do people say that I am? One of them answered and said, well, some people think you're Elijah that's come back. Some people think you're John the Baptist. And then he looked back at him and he says, okay, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, you are the Christ. And you are the son of the living God. And Jesus made an interesting statement. He said, blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my father who is in heaven revealed that to you. And Peter, it's gonna be on this rock that I'm gonna build my church. In other words, it's gonna be on the confession that I am the Christ and the son of the living God. It is on that rock, that confession, that I am gonna build my church. And then he says, and the gates of hell, the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, the church. And here was his point. His point was this, that when all these kings and all these kingdoms and all these little G-gods have come and gone. Jesus' point was that he's still gonna be standing there. And you know, Jesus made that statement that when all these kings and kingdoms and all these gods have come and they've gone, I'm gonna still be standing here. The church that I build is still gonna be here. He made that statement 2,000, 2,000 years ago. And you know what? So far, he was right. He was right. You know why I think he was right? Because I believe what the Bible says about itself is actually true. That the grass withers and the flowers fade. But the word of our God stands forever. Forever. I'll make a promise to you and then we'll pray. 2,000 years from now, if the Lord tarries, if he doesn't come back, here's the promise. Here's the promise. Barack Obama, Donald Trump, the United States of America, the left, the right, conservative, liberal, Republican, 
Democrat, all in the world that's gonna be 2,000 years from now is kind of a dusty old footnote in some history book. But I will bet my eternity right now that the word of God and his church will still be around. And you can base your life on anything you want. You can base your life on anything you want. But as for me and as for this church, we're not gonna base it on the culture. We're gonna base it on the book. Let's pray. If you're here today and you heard the voice of God and you wanna follow him, here's what I want you to do. After the service, we're gonna have some elders that are gonna kinda be down here in the front and um, if you wanna talk to somebody about what it looks like to be a follower of Christ, I want you to come grab somebody. They're good folks and they would love to talk to you about what it looks like to enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. To enter into a relationship through God, through this man that I believe with all my heart was exactly who he says he was. That died on a Roman cross to pay the penalty through his blood of your sin so that your sin could be forgiven and reconciled back to God. And then he was put in, a, in the ground and three days later rose from the dead, conquering death, making a way for us to have eternal life. If you hear God's words, and you feel inside of you more than anything else in the world that you wanna follow him, then you do that today. You do that today. If you're here and maybe this summer you, you've been basing your life and making your decisions on what you feel is best and, or that what the culture thinks is right and you just kinda need to turn from that and repent of that, then do that today. And ask the Lord to give you the strength to be ruled by his word, not, not yours. Father, there's not many things in this life that I'm sure of, but I'm sure this that I've never had any book, I've never had any word that speaks to my heart the way, the, way, the way yours does. And so I thank you for your word, God. I thank you for giving that great gift to us. I thank you for its power. I thank you for the way that it changes my life every time I open it. I thank you that I know you through it. I thank you that you're my shepherd. I thank you that I'm following you because of what you did in my life. I thank you for the cross. I thank you for the resurrection. I thank you for your church. I pray that we would be a church that lives according to your word. We thank you, we love you, and now God, we praise you for who you are and what you've done. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Amen, church, let's stand together.